0: Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. So glad you're here. Glad to see you. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can take it and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're continuing our series through the... The book of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And just taking it portion by portion as we look at what it means to live and to wait and to endure for Jesus until he returns. So Paul has, has shared with him the work of uh, reminding them and recounts for us the work of the gospel in chapter 1. He then in chapter 2 uh, for the first 12 verses anyways, begins, he defends his ministry against those who would possibly accuse him of doing it from impure motives and uh, actions that were not fitting of the ministry of the Lord. And then he goes in, we looked at um, last week, verses 13 through 16, where he, he describes the depth of his thankfulness for them, uh, how the word of God came to them and, and how they received the word even though there was a lot of persecution and affliction well, in our passage this morning, he's going to, we're going to dive into really his heart for them and his longing both to see them, and he's going to tell us about how he was, how he was uh, in anguish because he wasn't able to be with them in person. So we're going to pick it up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. He says this, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, In person, not in heart, we endeavored more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Uh, Alone is the name of a, of a reality TV show in which contestants are scattered out into um, a harsh wilderness all on their own with nothing but some survival gear. And they're ev- they're, there's not even a camera crew. They're given the cameras themselves uh, to to uh, document their their uh, their time in this wilderness, and so their task is to survive alone as long as possible, and the last person standing wins. And of course, you don't know uh, you know who's left or anything like that. I was uh, I was I was I was uh, I was caught in both mind and heart by what one contestant said when he he tapped out early, and he was doing well, but he said it wasn't surviving the elements that bothered him; it was surviving them alone. And as I thought about that, it reminded me of the spirit of the age when it comes to the church. Because the current spirit of the age in the church is, it's just a me and God approach. I can do this alone. It says my spirituality is my personal business. I'll show up to church on Sundays. I'll put on a smile on my face, and I'll even spout off some religious lingo. But after that, it's the end. And, of course, we should all affirm that Christianity is personal. We must also understand that it's not only personal. So, yes, I have need to have personal devotions. There are things that I need to do in my relationship with God to cultivate my relationship with Christ and to become more like Christ. But biblical spirituality is both personal and congregational, which is why we have things like church membership. Because we understand that biblical spirituality is not just a solo thing, but a congregational thing. So God gives gifts to other believers, and he wants to use those gifts that he's given other other believers to build me up. And what Paul is doing in this passage is he's going to revisit his relationship with the Thessalonians. And as you as we read through that, maybe you can even sense his anguish over the fact that they were torn away, and you can even sense his his deep, deep longing and desire to see them again. And he shared his heart for them. He shared he shared his concern for them. He shares he shares why he wants to be them, and he shares what he was willing to do in order to be with them and be among them. That's congregational Christianity. That's biblical spirituality. Because what we see in these verses is we see here that the bonds of the gospel between two parties, so uniting them that Paul's own heart was attached. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But he unfolds his heart, the anguish, the longing. And you never, you never, anytime you read the Apostle Paul's letters, you never get the sense that Paul was... Satisfied with a purely personal Christianity, and this is this is a guy who, out of all Christians ever to exist on the face of the planet in all of history, this was probably the guy who could probably get away with just being the personal solo Christian. And yet he didn't settle for just he and he and God, just a me and God approach to Christianity. He cultivated and maintained what, he would, what, what, what what I'm going to call gospel-centered relationships. And we get a great example of what's going on here in the passage that we read. And if you're wondering what a gospel-centered relationship is, perhaps it's better defined from Romans chapter one, verses 11 and 12, where Paul again is sharing the same concept, Romans chapter one, verse 11 and 12, where he says, "For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you." That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So there it is. So so that I might impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And then he says, not only that, I'm going to give you a gift to strengthen you. He says, I want to be mutually encouraged. Your faith encouraging mine. My faith encouraging yours. That's a gospel-centered relationship. And if you're a Christian, the foundation for these relationships has already been laid. That's the gospel. And so now, you take those relationships and you find ways to strengthen them. And to strengthen others. You find ways to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Now, Paul is being kept from doing this. He's being kept from doing this. He so longs to do this. But he's being kept from doing it. But it's an example for us, nonetheless, because we see in Paul what he was willing to do to make this and again, what I'm calling gospel-centered relationships, happen. And so this morning, I'm going to look at six, six actions to take to go- cultivate gospel-centered relationships. Let's jump into number one. Number one, bind your heart to other believers. Six actions to take to cultivate gospel centered relationships from Paul's example here and what he's doing with the Thessalonians. Number one, bind your heart to other believers. Now, Paul's, Paul here, again, he's probably still a little bit defending his ministry. Most likely, the, the, the enemies in Thessalonica were telling the, the church, he's like, hey, listen, Paul has run away from you. He's not coming back. He doesn't care about you anymore. He's on to the next crowd. He's on to the next fundraising event, and he doesn't care at all. He's out there getting his money and his fame and his applause. And Paul already defended that in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, but even here, he's, he's fighting against that by really describing the desolation of his own heart. He says they were torn away from them. Now, the word for torn away that we see there in verse 17 is ap-orphan-itzomai. So don't forget, the, don't forget the first part and the last part. Just I try to emphasize the middle part, and I hope you heard the word orphan. What he's saying here is he says we were, we're orphaned. We were orphaned from you. We were torn away. They were made orphans. It's one of the, I think one of the strongest words that Paul has ever used in any epistle. You don't get much stronger, much deeper than this word right here. It it was used uh, in those times of children who lost both of their parents or even parents who were bereft of their children. But the idea there is, Paul says, when, when, there, when we looked at this in the first week, but if you, we won't turn there, but in Acts chapter 17, he was run out of town. And Paul was saying it was as if, it was as if the, the, the very children he had were, were being stripped from his arms, and he was being taken away. And it was like the, just looking back, and the taillights were going down the road. And there was the brokenness as the children and the parents are separated. That's the word he's using here. It was like they were stripped from each other's arms, and the emphasis here is on the pain he felt and the yearning of his heart. Yet he says here, he says, we were torn away from you, but he says, in person, not in heart. I love that. Not in heart. And we have to be careful that we don't simply bind our presence to other believers once a week, and then we never bind our hearts. Paul wasn't just like, well, I just met these people. You know, I hope they do well. I taught them. I gave them the gospel. I told them what to expect. I, I did as much as I could. Let's hope they get on okay. And hey, if, if the Lord wills, you know, Lord willing, uh, you know, we'll, we'll meet each other again sometime in the future. That was never his heart when it comes to the people of God. His response flowed from a deep ties in the gospel. And we can see this again in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, where he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. Notice this phrase, because I hold you in my heart. He says, for you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. I hold you in my heart. In order to cultivate gospel relationships, we have to hold each other in our hearts. And you say, well, what on earth does that mean? And especially, you know, we're not in the context of Paul. We're not being, you know, nobody's, nobody's being dragged out of the surface at the end of the day, kicking and screaming unless there's a very hungry child ready for lunch. Uh, but but we're, not, we're not doing that. We're not screaming as we d- depart from each other. So what does this look like? I would just give you a few questions to maybe figure out how to apply this to our lives. Number one, do you rejoice in the faithful obedience of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you rejoice in the faithful obedience of your brothers and sisters in Christ? I think that shows whether or not you hold you hold other believers in your heart. Do you long to know how people are doing spiritually? Do you long to know how people are doing spiritually? Now I'm going to interject something here because I had a mentor of mine always always cautioned, uh, always always uh, or often cautioned people against what he called morbid curiosity. And the definition for that is it's unhealthy, unnecessary, and for the Christian, ungodly curiosity. And so, so again, if we're driven by morbid curiosity, where we don't really care how they're doing spiritually, but we sure would like to know all the details of what's going on, that's morbid curiosity. And it's ungodly curiosity, and it's unnecessary curiosity. But if in our hearts we truly want to know how people are doing spiritually with the, with the mindset of that, we're going to bind our hearts to theirs and their hearts to ours and, and help them walk in Christian love, that's what we should do. Another question is, do you carry concern for the spiritual well-being of other believers in your heart? Do you carry concern for the spiritual well-being of others in, uh, other believers in your heart? Do you think about, pray about, etc.? Do you rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? That's what it looks like to bind your heart to other believers. The second action to take here is in verses 17 and 18, where Paul turns passive intentions into action. Or I should say, he doesn't turn passive intentions. That's what you and I should do because we are so often, we just have passive, casual intentions of, you know, oh, I was going to do this or I should have done that or I was going to talk to this person. Or, I want You know, we, we always have those passive intentions, the casual intentions where we say, oh, I should have or I meant to, things like that. You never would have heard of that coming from Paul. Paul never, would never have said, oh, I was, you know, I was going to I was gonna talk to you about that or, or I was wondering, you know, no, nothing and so we need to turn our passive intentions into action. Paul endeavored all the more eagerly to see them face to face. In verse 17, we, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. I wanted to come to you again and again and again and again is the idea there. It's like Paul put in full effort, max effort to be with them. He made the plans, he made the arrangements, he got everything in order. The only thing that could stop him was an act of God. Or of Satan. And Paul says here, Satan hindered us. Now the word for hindered literally means to cut in. It's, it's actually used of soldiers that would, that would go on the road and they would break up the road so that, the, so that they wouldn't be able to pass through. And so that's the idea here. Satan somehow in some way cut in to Paul's plans to go and see the Thessalonians. Now we don't know how Satan did it. We don't know. Did, did he strike Paul with sickness? Did he, did he, did he use the opponents of Thessalonica. To, to keep him out of town. When he wanted to come back. Did he disrupt travel plans. By, by you know, causing diversions or distractions. We don't know. We're going to talk more about the spiritual warfare. Of other Christians. And what we're facing later. But here I, I want to emphasize the action that Paul took. To be with them. That he wasn't just giving a passive wish in a casual conversation. This wasn't a, hey, we should get together sometime. Have you ever said that? This was a, we are going to get together sometime, and I'm coming, and I'll be with you. He made plans and put them into action as far as God allowed. He never had a passive wish, casual encounter. He had fierce intentionality when it came to gospel relationships. I think one of the things that needs to be sucked from our own hearts is when it comes to relationships is the passivity of it all. We just all lean naturally towards passiveness when it comes to true gospel-centered relationships. This is way easier. Sitting and listening to a preacher is way easier than gospel relationships or relationships in general. Or having below the surface, deep heart-to-heart relationships. But Paul was never afraid to step into the hearts of other people, and he wasn't afraid to let other people step into his heart. And that's what a gospel centered relationship is, as far as I'm using the term. We need to make plans, develop gospel to develop gospel relationships and that go beyond the surface. And then we need to put them into action. We need to be willing to ask hard questions. There's only, really the only way to get into people's hearts or get into mine is to ask hard questions. And of course, there are times where it's more appropriate than others. I get all that. I'm not going to go through all the different qualifiers we need to make here. But we need to be willing to go into other people's hearts and let them come into ours. To ask hard questions, to make time for prayer with others, to be around other Christians. And to stop saying I've been meaning to, or I should do this, or I should do that, or I, we should, or we shouldn't, just going deeper than simply having that casual encounter, and it goes deeper than just inviting someone over, too. But it's again being willing to step in to another person's heart and being willing to let them step into yours. I was uh, I was with a group of guys in a in another church context. And, uh, guys, were hanging out and we're getting ready to pray. And one of the guys said, well, before we pray, how about we all just go around and we share what God has been doing in our lives. There's about six of us. And, um, honestly, I, ro- I, I rolled the eyes of my heart at that question. I was like, are you kidding me, like, let's just pray, I it was a long day, I was tired, and here, here you know, then someone said, yeah, this is your pastor, uh, and then somebody says, let's, let's go around and share what God's been doing in our lives, and I'm just like, dude, come on, and, and it wasn't because God wasn't doing anything in my life, it's just because I, I, at that moment, I had preferred the surface level conversation that didn't get any deeper, and by the way, that's not a very deep question at all. So all the other guys, when I, I let the other guys go first and, and uh, you know, that, that uh, I ended up sharing, you know, all that was on my heart that God had been doing. And, and I, I did not want a beneath-the-surface conversation, but one thing is for sure I needed a beneath-the-surface conversation. So I allowed them to step into my heart and they allowed me to step into theirs and it was helpful. So our hearts, we, they must be bound to One another. We've got to hold each other in our hearts, but then we we also need to give up those passive intentions and those casual intentions and and put it to action. Now, again, Paul was kept from doing this. Paul was saying, here's what I wanted to do, but I can't do it. We have all the freedom in the world to do it, but we don't do it. There's a third thing that we need to do with gospel-centered relationships. Number three, invest in eternity. Invest in eternity. Paul says in verse 19 and 20, he says, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Notice what he says here. Before our Lord Jesus at his coming. He's, He's very much looking to the future here. To when Jesus Christ returns. And Paul uses three words to describe what the readers meant to him. Okay, this future-focused portion here, he uses the word hope. He says, you're my hope. Now, he wasn't saying that they were his hope and that God wasn't, and so that he was somehow sinning by, by replacing hoping in God with hoping in them. But what he's saying here is that he was confident. He was confident that when he got to heaven, he would see those Thessalonians. Because of the work of Christ in their lives, he had confident hope that when his ministry would be put to the test at the judgment seat of Christ, his labors would not be in vain. So it was as if he was telling him here, when he says, you're my hope, it's as if he's saying, when Jesus comes back, you are going to be the proof that my ministry wasn't in vain. And then he says, you're my joy. This is just going to sound crazy. Because many of us don't think this way, but Paul anticipated and looked forward to the return of Jesus because all of us are going to be joyful when Jesus returns. But Paul is saying here, part, a piece to the puzzle of Paul's eternal joy will be the ways in which God used him to reach other people. Is he gonna have more joy? I, I don't think heaven's gonna be like like a like a different like we're all gonna have perfect joy, but some people are gonna have a 10, some an eight, some a three, or anything like that. I don't think I don't think that's what he's saying here. But I think he's certainly saying he's gonna have he's gonna have he's gonna have ample reason to to have joy just by looking at all the ways God used him in ministry. And he's saying he's gonna he's gonna be joyful seeing all those who God brought to faith in Jesus Christ through his ministry. You may have already said that what we do, even as Christians, though our eternity is secure and we will never, ever experience the condemnation of God, you may have already said that what we do here does have implications in our eternity. And I think Paul is saying that exactly. That part of the reason for joy at the coming of the Lord Jesus will be all those ways in which God used us to reach other people. And then he even says, he even goes beyond this. he says hope, joy, and then crown of boasting Paul is saying at the judgment seat of Christ and in glory, Paul will glory in what God achieved in the Thessalonian church. And as much as Paul wanted to see them face to face, he was looking towards heaven. And he says, listen, if the next time I see you is in heaven, you'll be my crown of boasting. His hope would be realized, his joy would be full, and he'll have even more reason to boast He looks at the Thessalonian church and says, man, I just have more and more reason to boast in God because of what he's done for you. Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 15. Verse 17 and 18, he says, in Christ Jesus then, he says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. What is he saying here? He's not saying I have reason to be proud in my work because I'm such a great preacher or because I have such a great evangelism strategy or because I'm so humble or because I'm so great or because I'm so effective. He says, no, I have reason to be proud of my work for God because Christ is accomplishing something through me for others. And that will increase all of our joy when Jesus returns He was not proud or arrogant or boosting himself or boasting in himself in his works. He boasted in what Christ was accomplishing through him. And We all have to have our eyes on the future. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Part of the joy of heaven will come from seeing those God used to reach, using us to reach them. In Luke chapter sixteen, Jesus tells a parable. It's one of my favorite parables. Uh, He says, uh, "He says he's telling this parable." And he's telling about this guy who's in debt. He's going to get fired. And so before he gets fired from his boss because he's a lousy worker, he goes to all of his manager's uh, um, uh, debtors, and he lowers their debt. And then it says that afterwards, those people are going to have to welcome him into their home because he lowered all their debts. And here's what Jesus' conclusion is in Luke chapter 16, verse 9. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of... Filthy mammon is really the idea there of unright, filthy richness, unrighteous wealth. Use the money you have to make friends. Why? So that when your money fails, and it will fail on this earth because you'll leave and you won't take any with you. He says those people who you use your money, your time, your treasures, your talents to invest in, they're going to receive you into eternal dwellings. So Jesus is saying... what should we do? We should do what Jesus commands, what Paul did, use our time, our treasures, our talents to invest in friends for eternity. Because the works of faithful obedience will be rewarded. Paul wasn't just investing in earthly things, he was investing in eternity. And so you might say, well, what does this have to do with gospel-centered relationships? Well, I think it has everything to do with it. Because we don't just look inward with each other, other Christians, although that's of course, necessary, but part of gospel-centered relationships is is going out and building more with people who don't know Jesus and haven't believed the gospel. There's a fourth thing that Paul does, fourth action to take, and that is to consider the needs of others as more important than your own. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, uh, when we could bear it no longer... We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. So Paul ends up saying here that when we could bear it no longer, it's, it was, it's like it was, it was after, he just couldn't, the weight of anxiety, the weight of concern that was pressing down on Paul, he just couldn't take it. He couldn't take the suspense any longer. He had to know how they were doing. It was so powerful. Like the ready to just blow off the roof, so to speak. And so Paul says he was willing to be left alone. And this is another, the, the, the word uh, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. It's another word where Paul says it's, it's, it's to be abandoned, to be lonely. If he's saying, I am willing to be lonely, abandoned, and by myself for your sake. One commentator argued that Paul perhaps felt even more out of place in Athens than anywhere else just by the nature of their plurality of religions and idols. And I think it's important to remember, in this time, I mean, the safest thing to do was to stay together. So traveling, uh, traveling alone, ministering the gospel alone, I mean, those are all dangerous things. That's why Paul had people with him. And Paul was willing to say, I'll leave it all behind, or you can leave me behind, and I'll stay behind. Paul would rather be left alone than the Thessalonians be left alone, and that was his concern. He's like, these people are left alone. They're children without the parents. Don't know what's going on, and so he sends Timothy. Do you know anyone alone in the gospel? What would you be willing to endure to erase the loneliness of someone alone in the gospel? Now, we're not the Holy Spirit. We don't have all the answers. We can't change everybody. We can't provide all the comfort or anything like that, but we can be a tool that God uses. And last I checked, no tool does any good if it's in the toolbox. We've got to be used by Him. One of the attributes from the love, the famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7 love endures all things. All things. I thought about Jacob. Remember he endured seven years, originally seven years, plus another seven in order to marry Rachel. Then I thought of Jesus who endured the cross in order to marry the church. And if we prioritize ourselves, then we won't prioritize others. So we have to consider the needs of others as more important. We have to be willing to endure whatever God is calling us to endure And this is one of the things I, th- I think is the danger of, of social media, especially today. You know, the, the word media means middle. And really what it's talking about is it's it's talking about putting a middleman in between us and other people. And so when it comes to social media, you know, it's, 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 we don't really, we don't even really know who's on the other end of the screen. But we have all the opportunity in the world to make sure that this middleman called social media, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. We have, we have all the power in the world to make sure the middleman presents to other people what we want to be presented as. And I think this flies in the face of being willing to endure anything because we get so caught up in, in esteeming ourselves and making sure our image looks good that we, we often lose sight of the needs of others. And now what we say is the needs of others is not as important as my need to project to the world the image that I want to project. We can be so concerned about our image, we soon come to care nothing about the people at the other end of the post. And gospel-centered relationships work to take out the middleman. Take out the middleman and now it's just heart-to-heart, person-to-person. Take out whatever stands between us and endures whatever God asks us to endure for others so that they may grow. Let's look at the fifth action to take. In verses 2 to 4, where uh, the, the fifth action is to help the wavering faith of others by grounding them in the truth. Help the wavering faith of others by grounding it, their faith, in the truth. Paul says, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. And then he says that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you before him that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So Paul sends Timothy, this well-qualified worker in the gospel. It's interesting, Satan didn't stop Timothy. But somehow, Timothy wasn't probably there when Paul was initially there. Timothy caught up with him later and maybe went to Thessalonica and then came back. And now Paul, I think, is going to send him back again. And so Satan and the people there, uh, perhaps his enemies, just didn't really know who Timothy was. So it wouldn't have caused that big of a deal. So he sends Timothy, this well-qualified man of God, used in the gospel ministry. And the task he was given was to establish and exhort the Thessalonians... The word, uh, the word establish means to, to provide a buttress. Kind of the idea there is to provide support for somebody who's about to fall over. And not only that, they were, uh, they were to exhort them, and, uh, to establish and exhort them. Kind of dress them for battle and get them ready. Show them how to face these afflictions. So he wanted to ground the Christians in the faith. He wanted to show them what it looked like to f- navigate these afflictions. Now, the problem was they were unsettled. They were moved. Uh, the, word, the word was used of a dog wagging its tail. And so you kind of got the picture there of somebody who's about to fall over. Maybe you get the idea, of, you know, when we, when we get into afflictions, we're, we're like the dog wagging its tail or like the wagging tail of a dog. We go from there to there to there and our emotions are running everywhere and we're running there and we're running over there and, we, you know, we, we, can't, we can't seem to, to, to balance out. And this is what was going on with, with the Thessalonians. They, they just couldn't balance out. They couldn't make sense at all. They were just going there, going there, wondering this, anxious about that, this, 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 this. And their, sh- their faith was shaking, and they were losing their stability. Which is interesting, by the way, because verses 3 and 4, Paul very clearly says, I told you this was coming. After they got saved, Paul taught a Christianity 101 class. And he didn't get to a lot of things. As a matter of fact, Timothy is going to bring back a report that they didn't really even know how to b- behave sexually. That they were, they, were, they were knee deep into sexual immorality. They had questions about the future and the end times. And, and they're wondering what's going on and what's going to happen all these things. But if there was one thing that Paul taught in Christianity 101 was that they were going to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. Guess what? Philippians 129. Notice here, this is Paul's teaching. It says, it has been granted to you. That word granted is the word for grace. It's a gift of grace from God to you for you to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ and not only believe in him. Suffering for no reason isn't grace. Suffering for the one who suffered for us is grace. Jesus talked about suffering uh, John 16:33 I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world John 16:33 We need relationships that ground us in the truth. Someone to rope in our emotions when our emotions start leading the way. someone to confront us and to confront the lies we are embracing. we need others to come and ground us and we need to be people who ground others in their faith let's look at the last one the last action to take for gospel-centered relationships number six is face the reality of spiritual warfare and i think many times we're just so blind to this paul says in verse five he says for this reason he says again when i could bear it no longer i sent to learn about your faith why he says for fear this word is the apprehension, the anxiety, the fearfulness. He says that somehow the tempter had tempted you. He's referring to Satan again here. And our labor would be in vain. Paul's concern is he wanted to find out about their faith. Were they staying in allegiance to Christ? Or had the tempter tempted them to commit the ultimate sin of apostasy? Had Satan been tempting them in other areas, perhaps like sexual immorality, like we'll read uh, here in the next chapter? He was concerned about their faith in the midst of spiritual warfare because Paul was in it too. Did you notice that? Paul says, "I, I know enough about spiritual warfare to know that you're facing it too. And that should be every Christian. Every every we should just know enough about the spiritual warfare in our lives to know that any Christian we talk to, uh, any member, fellow believer in Jesus Christ that we talk to, is facing it too. Satan is the great deceiver. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's the great accuser. He's the counterfeit, and he's the tempter of this age. He's called the God of this world and the prince of power of the air. In relation to the Christian, he is our adversary. And we are called to put on the armor of God and resist him. Satan hates God, hates God's people, and he is allowed, like we saw earlier, at times to cut into the work of the gospel. But it's always under the sovereignty of God. We learn that from Job chapter 1 verse 12. Because even Satan may be able to cut into your plan and my plan, but he can never cut into God's sovereign purposes Anytime God allows Satan to disrupt the plans of God's people, it's never at the expense of disrupting God's purposes. Paul is facing an obstacle. Now, he didn't attribute every obstacle to Satan. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 16, he said the Holy Spirit prevented him from preaching the gospel in an area he wanted to preach. We talked about that our very first message where he wanted to go to Bithynia, and he wanted to go to all these places, and he said the Holy Spirit prevented him from going there. And that's what eventually led him to Thessalonica. But while he doesn't attribute every obstacle he faced to Satan, he did, had a clash, he did clash with Satan under God's sovereign allowance on a number of occasions. And you, you, you'd be familiar with 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Where he says, so to keep me from from being conceited, and because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he says, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. There's him and Satan go a little bit head to head here under God's sovereign rule and sovereign allowance to keep me from being conceited. Paul understood the spiritual warfare that was taking place on the battleground of gospel ministry. And while Satan isn't all powerful, he is real. And his temptations are real. His hatred for Christians is real. His presence is real. And gospel-centered relationships get serious and get real about spiritual warfare. We should never be suspicious of each other. But we should always be aware that at any time when we are talking to another brother or sister in Christ, they have faced or are facing temptations to sin. Which I think it's why it's okay to ask in the proper context. Where have you been tempted the most this week? Where have you been tempted the most this week? Where have you been tempted most this week, but where have you given in to temptation this week? Those are questions we need to face as we, as we just face the reality of spiritual warfare that we all face together. These are the six actions to take I wanna know which one can you put into practice. And perhaps even here this morning and all this stuff about gospel community or gospel centered relationships, it sounds good, but you don't really you don't really know what's going on because because there's no possibility for you to have a gospel centered relationship because you've never believed the gospel. My call to you would be to believe that Jesus died for you and rose again. He paid the punishment for your sin, and the promise from God is that anyone who believes in him will have eternal life and all their sins forgiven. Gospel centered relationships are for gospel believers. And if you are in Christ, which one of these can you put into practice? If you are a believer, how are your relationships doing based on this list? May God stir within us and stir within our hearts the desire to take these actions to cultivate gospel-centered relationships. And by the way, tonight we're going to announce a special thing about small groups, a way that our church wants to help cultivate these very gospel-centered relationships. And we'll share more about that tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that the, the, the groundwork, the framework, the foundation has already been placed for us to have gospel-centered relationships. Now, Lord, we just need to get over our own egos, our own excuses. And, Lord, I'm praying that just as much for myself. So, Lord, continue to cultivate gospel-centered relationships, gospel community here at Calvary Baptist Church. In Jesus' name, amen.